Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day-to-day work. Listen to their real-life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. So welcome to the podcast today. I've got a panel uh, of people and we're talking about PI. So I'll go around my virtual room and if you could uh, just introduce yourself, I'll start with Paul. Hello. Um, My name is Paul Hartford. I'm director at Morgan Sloan Chartered Surveyors. We're a small general practice firm of surveyors specialising primarily in valuation work. We work for a range of clients, both the high street uh, lender clients private individuals, uh, leaseholders, freeholders, B2B work, a variety of all sorts of things. Cool. And we've got Ruth. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Marion. I I am primarily a a residential valuer. I have a small practice of my own, just myself and Jennifer. Um, And we do mostly value, it's it's, it's mostly valuation work. We do a lot of general practice, but it's mainly valuation work that we do. Some for... um, Lending work and some private work. And you're based up in the Highlands, aren't you? Yes, I am based up in the Highlands. Yes. <laughs> a standing joke between me and Ruth <laughs> as the Scottish contingent uh, uh, up there. Uh, and hello, Mark Carver. Hi, I'm Mark, obviously. Um, and I'm RICS advisor for professional indemnity. I'm, um, for my sins, a professional indemnity insurance specialist. So I've been doing this for Nearly 25 years, I've worked on both sides of the fence as an underwriter and insurance broker, and also do advisory work for um, local government and uh, government in addition to RICS. Cool. And got Alexandra Anderson. Hello. Hi. Um, so my name's Alex. I'm a partner in a city law firm called Reynolds Porter Chamberlain, and I have spent much of my 23 years there advising and defending claims against surveyors. And we did a podcast a little while ago on valuation, which has been really popular. Yes. So any anybody listening in, go back a few episodes and listening because it was uh, it was great. And then finally, we've got Hugh Garnett from RICS. Hi there. Yeah, I'm Hugh from RICS. I'm a senior policy specialist here. I've been at the RICS for just under two years and I work across a number of our consumer protection mechanisms including leading on, on our PII policy approach. Cool. So thanks for, for coming together. In the Surveyor Hub and um, also at Blue Got Box, we get asked lots of questions about PI. What is PI? How do I get PI? Why is PI so difficult? Um, I can't get renewal on my PI. I, I want to close down my business or stop doing valuation work because of the PI situation. And so I thought it was timely to uh, get a small panel together to talk about this this whole situation because I know there's been some changes to the minimum policy wording and also we know that the market is or everybody keeps on telling me the market is hardening and it's hard to get PI insurance. And so when we sort of look at what what surveyors can can do. But first I'd like to start with Paul and Ruth. So you're both small businesses. Um, and to talk about your experience of applying for PI and, and what that looks like, perhaps I can start with you, Ruth. Well, in terms of um, applying, we spend usually between 
two and three days collecting all the information that we have to get to send off um, for our proposal form. And it's always a bit nail-biting. We apply usually about a month before. It's due, it's June, it's starting of December and we apply to start in November. And we usually don't get anything back until usually about two days before it's due, which is quite nerve-wracking. I know last year coming up to December, um, I had heard a lot about um, um, premiums doubling for a lot of people and ours had doubled the year before from about 5,000 to 10,000. Um, so I was very anxious really about how, how that was going to come out. And then uh, two weeks before um, we were due to renew, we got a potential claim in. So then it was all, that was all up in the air. And um, I think I spoke to you at one point and you kindly put me on to Mark, who advised that because my broker didn't tell me that we would almost automatically get an extension until any sort of investigation had gone into the, the claim. I wasn't worried about the claim because I was pretty, I mean, I was pretty confident that it wasn't going to go anywhere, but it was just the fact that it was um, impacting on this um, proposal. So in the end, we did get the, the, uh, practically the same premium that had gone up about £1,000 um, from the year before, um, and the claim wasn't resolved. But thankfully, Mark had um, advised me that I should be um, entitled to an extension. My broker did not even mention that. And even when I asked the broker, he seemed quite sceptical that the, the insurer would um, come up with a, an extension. In the end, we did um, renew on, on the, the date as, as anticipated, and it was fine, but it, it's just it's just a very, very anxious time. And I know that all last year I was thinking, if this doubles again, can we keep going? And it's just very stressful. It's a whole layer of anxiety that you do not need on top yeah. of doing the job. And I think particularly last year with COVID, because, you know, some people were working and not, you know, I know it's been really difficult, particularly this last year. And that really <laughs> resonates with me in terms of, you know, getting the... Uh, getting the renewal and the extensions because actually we at Blue Box had a similar situation. Mm. Now we're a, a, a small company, we're a training company. We don't come under the typical valuation surveyor route, if you like. But it was a, at the last minute, there was a circumstance raised. It turned out to be nothing, but you have to raise it in good faith as you're supposed to. And then there was just a roller coaster of, do you know what? If we don't, if we don't get this PI through by Thursday, I don't have a business. And if I don't have a business, then we need to explain that to people and the contracts that we have. And it got to a point, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say that I had to pull out the governing council card to say, I don't, because I, I couldn't understand. I couldn't, I couldn't understand that, you know, that if I don't get PI insurance, you're going to have to write a letter to explain to me because I'm on governing council. And clearly I need to make sure I've got PI cover. And what it came down to was actually not really much to do with the insurance. It was the broker. It was really poor handling by the broker that made it stressful. I mean, I was nearly in tears in the phone. I probably had a bit of a blub. I'm not ashamed to say, because that's how, 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 how bad it is. This was a couple of years ago. And, you know, it all comes to a head, but the, the brokers, and I know this is something Hugh and I have talked about as, 
uh, you know, we, we have a sort of approved insurers, but do we have approved brokers? And are there standards for the brokers as to what happens and, and when? But it's a really um, anxious time. And although, you know, you started in good time, you know, no matter, um, we started in good time a, cu- a couple of times now we've done this. It doesn't matter. You get your PI when you when you mm. get your, your PI. So th- thanks for, sh- for sharing that. Paul, tell me about your experience because you're a slightly different sort of size firm and, and tell me about your experience. Yeah, we, as Ruth said, stress doesn't even begin to cover it. Just a little bit of background. Ruth said it was herself and one other person with her. I think we're slightly, we're not a massive firm by any means, by any, by your means, but there's myself and six or eight different folks, depending on how you count them. Um, we've got two administrators to supports and the rest are fee earners some workers consultants some are directly employed but yeah there's about about six or eight of us um our pi is due towards the end of november in each year so last year we uh, submitted our renewal forms and what have you about six weeks early i think it was it was kind of towards the beginning of the october um so plenty of time and as Ruth said, we put a heck of a lot of work into it. We didn't just fill out the bare minimum forms that, you know, the insurer requested. Um, I've got the completed PDF open on my other screen here, and it's 35 pages long. It's got complete analysis of our fees, where they've come from, breakdown by lender and by job type. And it is comprehensive, to say the least. It gives, I think, a very good breakdown as to ourselves as a business, how we operate, the level of our professionalism. Um, You know, this isn't just some hand-scribbled and scanned PDF document. This is fully presented as I would present any report that goes out in our name. But anyway, there's a lot of information there. So... We submitted it beginning of December, uh, beginning of November, um, as I said. Um, on the 17th of November, which was two days before the renewal was due, we still hadn't heard anything from the insurers. Finally heard back from them, like I said, on the 17th, just two days before, and they were quoting uh, a premium of £20,000 plus a £10,000 excess. And to give some context, the year before our premium was £8,000 and the year before that it was £2,500. So over the course of three years, it had gone up tenfold. And yes, we've grown slightly over that time, but not tenfold. Um, <laughs> so this was obviously a little bit of a concern, to say the least. So dealt with that. They had a couple of extra questions. So it came to the 19th of November, which is when our that policy expired and they still hadn't come back to us with a formal offer. So we were granted an extension, which the broker managed to organise. You obviously commented that you had some issues with brokers not talking about extensions, as did actually volunteer, suggested that themselves and said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll sort this out for you. And they did, which is very helpful. A couple of days after that, on the 23rd, we then had a revised quote from the insurers for a premium of £45,000 plus IPT for only £1 million worth of cover. Bear in mind, we had had £2 million the year before that we had five. So, you know, we've been reducing our cover level and increasing our premiums vastly over that period. So when this £45,000 quote came in, which obviously would have been north of 50 by the time you added IPT onto it, I had a little bit of a breakdown, as you can imagine. 
viewing, thinking my business was about to go under the livelihood of myself and all the people that work for me and all the rest of it. So I phoned Marion in a little bit of a panic, given she's the font of all knowledge. And she very helpfully put me in touch with Mark, I think through Hugh. I think you got involved somewhere along the, somewhere along the line as well. And two days after that, Mark sorted us out with cover, fully issued, fully operational for a premium of £13,000, which was a little bit of an improvement over £50,000. So quite how Mark managed to do it in less than two days and the previous insurers took over six weeks and didn't actually manage to achieve anything is frankly anybody's guess. Obviously, Mark's was through the ARP which did create some issues in itself in that the lenders that we work with didn't ne- wouldn't necessarily automatically approve ARP cover. Luckily, you know, we were reviewed and it was all fine and we're back to where we were, you know, before this all mm. started and the lenders are happy and the clients are happy and all the rest of it. But my point is that kind of six to eight week period was... So stressful. It was, yeah, yeah. Morgan Sloan has been going since 2012. I've been in the game for over 20 years, and it was probably the most stressful period I've ever had. And not just for myself, but for my staff. Obviously, during the period where the old cover had expired and we were on extensions and then the lenders were reviewing us, we had a period where we couldn't do anything. So I had to go to all the clients and say, sorry, we're in between insurers at the moment. We can't do any work. All the staff are sitting around now twiddling their thumbs in the middle of COVID and all the rest of it that's going on. So it was just a total nightmare, a total and utter nightmare. Thank, thanks for sharing that, Paul and, and Ruth. And perhaps if we can come to, to Mark or, or, or Hugh, you know, you've got sort of three stories of stress of putting these things together. And nobody expects it to be easy, you know, and being prepared, having all your documents together, the things that made it difference, uh, made it uh, made it better when we got our next PI um, after you know that that uh, situation. You know, my we had a good document, good business plan, and actually the bro- I stayed with the same broker. They really upped their game and improved themselves, and they gave me some really clear advice on how to submit our, our application. And effectively, we put in a, a business plan. You know, it's a bit what Paul did, uh, described. Um, and that obviously made it clearer to explain what we we did. But there's a couple of um, things there. Mark, you sound like a knight in shining armour uh, for, for people. But first of all, perhaps for people who are listening, can you explain what the ARP is? Because my experience from when I was dealing with complaints and claims back in the day was the ARP was effectively a naughty boys list for firms who couldn't get cover because they've had claims. But that's that's wrong. You know, it's we've got firms who cannot get cover now and so they go to the ARP. But perhaps you can explain a bit more about what it is. Yeah, I think it's been important to take into context where, where the ARP sits. And I would have said, you know, even running the ARP for a number of years, I think the, the, the description of it in terms of a naughty boys list, it was probably quite correct up until 2019. To give you some context, what we did for the 2020 renewal, the ARP actually is an annually renewable contract. So it gets renewed each year with every listed insurer who can write RICS business. They also have to contribute to the assigned risk pool. So, the assigned- so, so, yeah, so sorry. So ARP stands for assigned risk pool. Yeah. 
It's all the insurers who are approved to insure surveyors have to mm-hmm. contribute a little bit of pot of money to go yep. into this safety net. Absolutely. So it's a market solution and, and it's been in existence, I think, since 2000 or 1999, to be fair. So it's been in existence an awful long time. Up until 2020, it was really there for those risks who couldn't get insurance, but there was a reason for it. So we've talked a lot about broker behavior and a bit about insurer behavior. You know, my view on life, whether you're a surveyor, insurance broker, underwriter, lawyer, there are good and bad in whatever what, what whatever profession. But I think up until 2020, it was probably in place for those firms who couldn't get insurance for a very good reason, which was probably claims experience. And I can look historically and, and see an awful lot of examples of that. And historically, the ARP didn't make any money. It made a significant loss for insurers, but it was a cost of going on. What we did when we came, uh, we're discussing 2020 renewal. And remember, at the point when we start these discussions, they're probably around four or five months ahead of where we're putting a contract in place. So when the RICS and myself and insurers, we, we started discussing the ARP, things such as lockdown wasn't even in our vocabulary. You know, we couldn't even envisage it wasn't in the full process. However, we did think at the time we were were concerned with where the market was traveling in terms of RICS members and insurance and you know other professions in general. And we anticipated that the ARP would need to change because we felt that there would be insurers who were un- insured or RICS members who would be unable to get insurance, not because they're a bad risk in any stretch from a claims experience, but simply because the market was contracting quickly. So in in other words, supply wasn't there. Insurers were concerned around writing surveyors and valuers. So we changed the ARP um, in two ways. We changed it that we could offer 12-month terms without the requirement of a business review. And we changed the basis of coverage to what's called aggregate plus unlimited round-the-clock reinstatements, which is a horrible insurance technical term, which effectively means the same thing as any one claim other than it pushes um, exposure throughout programs. And we got insurers to agree, to, to agree to those terms. And the reason we did it was no more, no less than we were concerned on market supply and we wanted a function in place. The one thing, and, and I think RICS members, are it's pretty unique to any profession. Now, I think the ICAW run a similar pool. But the one thing that RICS members or registered firms have is the ARP will guarantee to provide insurance for a 12-month period or that initial thing if you're unable to get terms in the open market or if those terms are deemed to be a constructive declinature. So it's a huge benefit. So before, mm. before we're worrying around whether you get a term, there is a safety net in place. And that's what yeah. that ARP position does. The good news to provide some, some context is – it's quite correct. It's been a horrible, hard market. Okay, insurance prices. Whether you're a surveyor, whether you're a solicitor, um, as I'm sure Alex will, will, will confirm, whether you're an insurance broker, we've all had to pay more premium. 
and we, we've all struggled with getting capacity on, onto our respective um, programmes. But the point is on the ARP, I think we saw roughly 55 inquiries over the year. And I think we have around 40 firms in the ARP out of six and a half thousand registered firms. So the point is, is you know, it's still, still firms have been able to get insurance. It, it, mm. It's on that basis. I think there's a lot of surveyors out there who don't know about the ARP. And also when they speak to brokers, and I know when my experience, when I, I spoke to the broker about, okay, well, does this mean I need to go to the ARP? They said, what's that? You know, and so there is this, this breakdown, but as surveyors and, uh, you know, they need to take the initiative and to find out and understand what RICS membership offers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully this, you know, we'll put links and resources and things in the uh, podcast show notes and in the uh, in the blog so they understand what's available. One of the things that I've um, that I've been uh, asked or, or has come up in, in conversation with surveyors is, we seem to sort of do that in, in reverse. So you can get insurance from different insurers. And if you can't, then you go to RICS. But why isn't it not in reverse? You know, why can't we go to RICS to help us then get insurance? I think uh, certainly from an ARP perspective, the reason why it's, it's in reverse is, I think from I'm speaking on behalf of the RICS, I'm sure Hugh will jump in. I think the hope is the market actually functions properly and actually provides terms and quotes. And by and large, if we look for the period up until 2019, that's exactly what the market has done. Mm -hmm. You know, so really is an insurance issue. This is, you know, always has been, you know, a fail safe. It's that last resort. And that's the reason why, Marion, I think in in terms of the thinking, we've never envisaged a position where the market is declining risks with no claims. Or, or limited claims because it it doesn't want them, you know. So yeah. this is a twelve to fifteen month development, you know, and, and and I guess that's the reason why. And everything changes and evolves as the ALP has evolved over an eighteen month period to to make it more flexible on that 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 basis. Anything from you on that, Hugh? Yeah, I agree with everything that that Mark said there, and I think you know it's, it's something that we're conscious about and you know we are looking at how we approach pi more broadly we are reviewing our approach currently uh, and over the coming uh, year we'll be looking at all our pi requirements and and, and our ap- approach to pi and, and and that includes you know that that includes everything including how how firms will will obtain it so as as mark said you know it's something that evolves over time. This is a, a, a fairly new market situation that we're dealing with. And our absolute priority is to develop and, and maintain and, and support a sustainable and affordable PI market. And, one and of we'll the, be making steps to do that. Yeah. One of the things that's changed is the minimum policy wording. Could you explain what that is? Yep. So the, the minimum policy wording is... The wording that we have in place that insurers uh, agree to, to sign up to, to 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 write RICS business to regulated firms, and it really sets out the base level of cover that uh, we believe regulated firms should have. Um, this gets renewed on yearly basis. We recently made uh, well the, the latest uh, minimum terms came into effect on the first of April. And we made two changes to the policy wording. 
One was around fire safety cover. We know that over the past two years, fire safety has been a real concern of insurers, you know, as a result of fairly large, fairly sort of uh, public uh, high profile fire safety failures. And over the last sort of two years or so, we've seen increasing use of exclusions from insurers uh, being placed in policy wordings, um, starting off relating to cladding, but then becoming much broader, ending up in sort of blanket exclusions. And as a result of that, in, in May last year, we temporarily inserted the ability for insurers to insert their own fire safety exclusions. You know, we were keen to bring some cover back into the market, particularly for sort of lower risk uh, work. And over the over the past year, we've been uh, working with insurers and in discussions with insurers ar- around that. And in the new policy wording, we have agreed that uh, insurers can continue to insert their own fire safety exclusions, but these will not apply to all professional business relating to buildings under four stories. So it's a fairly significant step forward, we think, in, in bringing cover back into the market, particularly for those you know, building surveyors, those surveyors who, who are undertaking uh, low-risk work. And the, the second change is around cyber risk. This was a result of a new regulatory requirement from insurers, from, the, from their regulatory authority, to really clarify and, and be expressed in the cyber cover that is provided in PI policies. It was really due to a concern. Of, there was really a lack of clarity in what was covered. And we've been working with uh, the International Underwriting Association and a number of other professional bodies to come to an agreed approach on, on how, we can, uh, how we can deal with that. And as a result, we made a number of minor changes to the wording um, really to clarify what is covered. It's not aimed to reduce the cover provided, but uh, rather to clarify what is and what is not ex- excluded. I, th- I think that's a really important point of it's okay getting your PI, but then you've really got to check the detail of what you're actually covered for. And um, Perhaps sort of Alex, maybe I can come to you because, you know, we hear about, you know, the, the, the claims that go on, but are there many claims where surveyors it turns out they're not actually covered in the PI you know fortunately that is fairly rare because of the benefit of having the minimum terms um, which limit the way that insurers can take points particularly if there's a late notification or something wasn't disclosed prior to inception of the policy generally they will still have to pay that claim the greatest risk is probably and this was brought to everyone's attention in the case of Hart and Lodge um, which I'm sure surveyors are well aware of where you don't have adequate insurance and and if you don't have enough to cover the claim. And the problem with claims made policies is it doesn't matter how great your insurance is at the time you did the work. If you don't have adequate insurance at the time the claim is made, that's what's relevant. So it is very important to make sure you're keeping an eye on whether you think you have adequate insurance in place, not just for what you've done, not what you've done, you're doing now, Mm. but also what you're doing in the past. Yeah, that that's really that's really important. So in in Heart and Large, I think the survey had actually retired, that's and right. so there's some some minimum requirements of of having this runoff cover, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So he had he had the minimum that was required, but unfortunately, it wasn't sufficient to cover the claim that or the, the judgment that was eventually made against him. One of the questions that's come up in the hub um, a few times is, how, and on the back of of Heart and Large, is how much cover should you have and what's your your minimum? So 
is it is it 250,000 or is it a million is a is, is there a standard minimum amount of cover that that you need to have and should that be should that relate to the value of the property you know that you know if you're in a high value area should you have a a higher minimum cover or um you know how how does that work or, or is there a, a formula or a pro- approach surveyors should use uh, unfortunately, I don't think there is a hard and fast rule you could apply, but I think all you can do is look at the kind of work you're doing. Obviously, it will be if you're talking about an alleged overvaluation of a property worth 100,000, you could be 20% out, but the loss is only 20,000. If you're looking at a million pound property, then it's 10 times more, and therefore you may want to have some significantly greater cover. So I think you just have to be thinking about what the nature is of the business that you're doing, what kind of claims you might come across. I mean, obviously, if you're just doing pure survey work and not bank valuation, then the type of risk you face is very different. What are the chances of you missing a defect other than the whole large situation, which which attracts a very significant award of damages. So I think it's just being aware as part of your risk management, what the type of work is you're doing and what the potential is in terms of claims coming out of that. Mm. And I think often surveyors might go for the maximum that they can get, but, you know, afford, you know, that they can afford, but there needs to be, I think something documented in their in their business that they've done that assessment so that they're taking stock of the kind of properties that they're inspecting the kind of values that they're looking at and that should perhaps sort of form part of the um uh, of the application so i was going to say mary i think that they're free it's the question we get asked as insurance Mm. brokers all the time and 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 as you'd expect we um dodge the question as as much as we possibly can do but the, the factors i would take into account is well what have you contractually agreed to Right, that's the easiest thing. You know what contracts you have signed and, and what you've given away. I would then the risk assessment point I think made I think is a really good one, you know, and I think it's prudent, you know, to to do that annual assessment of what have you done, what's the exposure, you know, over that period of time, and look historically back because it's claims made, and I would suggest you need to look back over a six-year period of what you've done over that period and, and and test the adequacy. I would then look at what's available and what that cost is. So that's something that has to come into that that calculation. And then you know the final point, and what I would do as a as a buyer of insurance is, well, what am I happy? What can I sleep easy? buying and and i think you you get to that mix somewhere but the common area that we have seen not necessarily from surveyors but certainly in the construction industry is you do a contract the contract's finished you've got your money oh we reduce the the limit straight back down and it isn't going to work because it is claims made so you really have to understand that nature of the contract mm-hmm. so as part of your your business planning and financial planning you need to have that built in going forward and I think there are a lot of surveyors out there who just quite frankly work hand to mouth time for money and they don't and I, I come across that in the business coaching that I do uh, on my mastermind um, is they don't have a business plan and they're not thinking ahead and the exit strategy for their business as well one of the things that often comes up um, in the hub and, and, and I'm contacting it contacted about is you know should I notify my insurer you know, because I'll have to pay the excess and it could be nothing, uh, uh, you know, and, and I would always advise, you know, you've got to, that that's what you've signed up to, to make sure that you you notify them. But sometimes the, you know, the cost of defending something can be quite, can be quite expensive, can't it? The cost of defending something. We've had um, a surveyor recently in the hub talk about cybersecurity 
as it as it, as it happens. Um, there was an incident with the solicitor where the emails were hijacked and money was transferred. And thankfully, the client did manage to get their money back by some miracle. But now they they're suing the surveyor because they may have played a part or or something like that. And and now they've got to investigate all of their own technical you know systems, make sure they're okay. Do they or do they not notify their insurance? It's the cost of defending things that, you know, may come to nothing. You know, it really puts people off. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a challenge, and particularly after the, the amendments to the minimum terms in, in April 2020, which allowed costs to now be inclusive. So, so in other words, the surveyor has to pay the costs, the first cost of defending rather than their insurers picking up the bill. But I would still recommend that you ought to notify because you don't know how a particular problem is going to develop. And particularly when you're dealing with a highly technical area, like uh, there's been a huge increase in people making data subject access requests um, and claims under GDPR and kind of the cyber side, the more technical areas that may not be familiar to a surveyor. Um, actually knowing that you've got people on board who can come and assist you in defending that claim, I think is is worth the money itself. And it stops things escalating to a situation where actually that claim could be far worse than it was if you could have dealt with it quickly at the start. Mm. So what can uh, firms do to reduce their liabilities and, the, and their exposure, Alex? Well, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things. Um, and I suppose that the first thing is is make sure you know who your client is. Do proper due diligence on your client and make sure it's only your client who can make any claims against you in relation to the work that you've provided. Don't allow any third party reliance as far as is possible. Or if you do try and ensure that that third party reliance is subject to any terms and conditions you've agreed with the client. Secondly, terms and conditions, make sure you're clearly recording what the scope of the work is that you're doing and any limitations to that work. So if you're not going to be inspecting there, you normally would. If you're not going, if you're going to be relying on information provided by a third party, make it absolutely clear what the position is in terms of where liability may rest as a result of that. Limitations of liability, obviously, if you're dealing with a consumer, it's quite difficult to agree something that will be legally enforceable because the consumer law is very much on on their side, quite rightly. But certainly, you should always think about having a conversation with your client, whether it's B2B or B2C, about where might be an appropriate sharing of risk in terms of something that might go wrong on this project. Also, think about having other clauses that would be perfectly enforceable even against consumers, like personal liability clauses, ensuring that that you can't be sued personally, that any claim goes against the company. And that leads to another point, thinking about your corporate structure. Do you want to operate as a sole trader or a partnership rather than a, a limited liability company, which gives you some protection against claims coming against you personally, against your assets? There's also clauses like proportionate liability clauses where other people have been responsible in part for causing any loss, including the claimant, so that there's a fair apportionment rather than you being liable for the whole of the loss. Um, So there are other terms that you can use to protect your position. Good risk management, making sure that you have proper uh, systems in place for checking reports before they go out having proper record keeping, not just of what you've done in terms of conversations during a survey or when you're preparing the evaluation, but also afterwards any PBQs or any follow-up, make sure that is all recorded as well, because the hardest thing to defend a claim against a professional, if you've got no records, you've got nothing to prove that they did this or that, um, and therefore it's going to be very difficult. Um, so I'd say all of that record keeping is is vital to that good risk management. And then obviously just having adequate professional indemnity insurance. 
And I would refer people, and there's a, a new edition or it's an updated version of what was originally a guidance note produced by the RICS on valuation claims. That's now been broadened. So it's the first edition, but it covers all risk and liability and insurance. And I would strongly recommend that people look that up. It's only came out at the beginning of this month, I think. Um, but it does give a lot of helpful guidance about ways that you might look to limit your liability and the different steps that you can take to protect your position to, to reduce your risk. That that's really helpful, Alex. Paul and Ruth, listening to that list of these are the things that you need to do. How do you feel? Because as a small business myself, and a lot of the surveyors that I, you know, that, that I interact with, that can feel quite overwhelming uh, to think of all of these things that you that you need to do. How how do how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, as you say, it, it can be overwhelming and you can think, oh, my God, there's like a massive long list of stuff to do. But I think the first and the important thing to to say is get really good advice. You know, people come to us as surveyors to get our professional advice on things, on their house, whether it's going to fall down, how much it's worth, blah, blah, blah. So as surveyors, we should go to a professional who knows their business. Get a good lawyer that knows how to draft terms and conditions. Don't try and do it yourself or copy somebody else's or, you know, get someone to give you specific advice for your business and the way you work and how you operate. I think that's a really good, so, really good point, Paul, you know, because I do be see... Like, that advice. Yeah, I see lots of surveys saying, you know, has anybody got an example of some terms? Yeah. You know, as a, as a starting point, and then they end up sort of cribbing them. Yeah. You know, when you create systems and processes and documents in your business, you need to invest in them because you're creating assets. Hmm. You know, all of these systems, processes, documents, the terms, they're all assets in your business that add value and then create this structure, this nice, solid platform that you can work from with confidence and then go ahead and, and oh, I'm getting a bit of feedback from someone um, and then get... Um, uh, you know, go ahead and do your geeky surveyor job that you love, but you're doing it from a platform of of a nice, well-run business that that makes you feel secure at the end of the day. And I don't see enough surveyors investing in in things like that. What about you, Ruth? Yeah, it's, it, there's an awful lot there. Um, my biggest thing is just record keeping. Um, I'm quite um, heavy on that. Well, as, as, as in you like, you do do that or you don't? Yes, I have. Um, most of our work is done through, I mean, we do a lot of um, um, home reports and all the terms and goods, that's all standard. It's all standardised, it's all in the document. So they're all up front already and a lot of the other work we do is through a corporate. So again, that's, that's all sort of standardised there. There's, very, there's only a little bit of work that we would do that we would have to do sort of um, like liability caps and things like that on ourselves. And it's low value work, usually it's boundary reports or things like that. It's not, it's mm. not, there's not much in terms of that. I, I think that works sort of two ways. When you've got quite standard work that you do, you can get quite complacent about the terms and you've got to make sure that you you do keep an eye on them, you do, um, you do update them. But, but also, you know, when it comes to, the paperwork is it's a bit boring. Mm. Well, in terms of in terms of home report, we can't change that. It's a standardised. Everybody works the yeah. same the same terms and conditions for that. But obviously, we have to put in all the the, the limitations in, and that yeah, very yeah, good on that. <laughs> Hugh, 
Yeah, so again, I just want to recommend reading the risk liability insurance guidance note because it it does suggest some wording around uh, around terms of conditions and it does have suggested wording there. And on so again, would encourage listeners to review the the guidance note and 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 take take note and um, and review their terms of conditions as a result of it. We'll put a link to um, to a lot of these documents in the show notes and in the blogs because uh, I think sometimes it is a like trying to find a needle in the haystack, trying to find the right document when you when you need it. So we'll 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 make sure we we put those in. Um, so let's just have a you know just, that's been really useful uh, discussion. Thank you for that. Perhaps we can just have a bit just a chat about the the market in general now. You know we've we've talked about COVID and it being a difficult uh, year. You were talking about um, insurers, you know, there not being many of them about. What's the crystal ball view on things going forward or things that surveyors need to be aware of? Okay, I, I guess that automatically falls for me. I think before answering, I just go back in terms of what the stats tell us happened last year over the, over the past 12 months. Looking at the returns from insurers to the RICS, for the last 12 months, it looks like premiums for the profession as a whole, just for the primary million, increased by 35%. Okay, so puts into context where, where it is. That's probably understandable because I think if we were to do this podcast last year, so if we were to reverse, we, we would probably have been saying, well, look, there is going to be a reduction in the number of insurers simply because insurers have ceased writing. You know, so that supply chain went down. We would have talked if it was of today's date. We we would have talked a bit about lockdown and and the fear of what that would do on a property recession side in there, and we would have talked about saying actually the market needed a jolt correction. So whilst you know RICS members and other professions may not agree with the price increasing uh, and what's happened, the point is. You know, even looking at the market value now for primary surveyors, which is around 55 million, 54 million pounds just for the primary one, that's still less than in 2004. So work that out. Logically, it makes no sense because exposure is significantly higher. So clearly something needed needed to happen. I think if I was to now look at the crystal ball going forward, in terms of the, the the client base we we would have for our own insureds we start conversations probably you know at least six months before so not a formal renewal conversation but an outlook and our view would be very much that insurers would be looking to increase rates by around 20 percent for the forthcoming year now rate in insurance world means whatever your last fee income declared income is plus that 20%. Okay, so it's not 20% on top, it, it means that exposure rate. That said, we would then say, well, you know, our anticipation is that exposure would be down. So if you if your fee income was 100,000 last year and it's 90,000 this year, that's 10% less and then you add the rate on on top. So, you know, that gives you an idea of, of where we would start focusing. We would then look at what the, the issues on the market, and we can't get away from it. Whether again, whether we agree with it or, or, or not, insurers' main concern at the moment 
certainly from a valuation perspective, is, is whether we go into to a recession and what impact that has on their portfolios. And to some extent, you know, we, we can understand why, because we know the financial crisis resulted in around 300% more claims, as in payments, to 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 insurers over that period, and we know that from our own stat, and the the figures are incredibly large. So insurers didn't make a return, and insurers will be fearful of that. That said, it's slightly illogical because we also know from our own stats that valuation claims are at probably an all time low. You know, but the point remains that we're coming out of lockdown. We still have um, a Brexit um, position. There haven't really been claims, but well, lenders haven't been able to bring claims, I think, I'm correct in saying, for the past 12 months. So there will be some spike upwards, I suspect. As to whether it's a tsunami, well, who knows? I'm a broker, so I'm hopeful and I don't think it would be. And, you know, I think that there are arguments why that wouldn't, you know, from everything from it's not exactly an overheated property market, but who knows? But that that's the position insurers will take, and that's why they're concerned um, on, on valuation exposure. Added to that, I think insurers will have a concern on fire safety. So I think Hugh outlined did what outlined what those changes were. And I think insurers will look behind it and say, well, actually, it does cost more money. We do have to re-underwrite um, portfolios. And I think that the, the point I would make is, you know, there's a balance between having appropriate and correct coverage and not. So I think all of that would would, would come into um, the mixed. You know, so I think it will be tough year again. I think it would be really interesting to see how insurers cope with firms declaring reduced income and what that does on their portfolio because remember they have business plans as well and budget budgets and targets they have to meet if i was um looking from a member um perspective i would be looking at those insurers that have withdrawn over the past 12 months so we know who won't be providing renewals from this point onwards so you know that includes AWAC, it includes Folgate, it includes DTW, who wrote under something called the the Underwriting Specialist, and it includes Antares, and finally, Neon, you know, who ceased to write. So if you have any of those on your insurance program, I'd be instantly thinking, well, I know it's not going to be as is, there's some instability in there, so prepare on that basis, you, you know, really yeah. um, be, be we'll try and be as proactive as possible. You know, there's going to be some disruption. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, can I ask you about pricing? Mm. So one of the things that we, I mean, we always want PI to be as cheap as chips, but, you know. <laughs> but one of the things I often talk to surveyors about is charging what they're worth. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of surveyors out there who don't get paid properly. They don't know how to ask for the right fee for the work that they that they do. Um, if they worked out, you know, a lot of them don't even know their hourly rates and their take home pay. You know, they just look at the, the the fee for the individual job and then compare themselves to others. But when it comes to PI, you're working out based on the overall income. So if you did less jobs but were paid more well, then your PI is going to be higher. 
and it then becomes sort of a bit of a vicious circle of well you need to charge more so you can get your get your pi you know so yeah I, I, thoughts I, on that i think it's a re- re- really interesting point marion and i think there possibly is a flaw in how underwriters rate premium and i say that as a as, as a former underwriter who did exactly the same thing and you know insurers will rate on exposure so breaking it down what they do is rule of thumb it's last complete financial year income you then have all of those horrible percentage work splits you're having to complete on the proposal form that's applied um, to the overall exposure and rate is applied to each individual work split which 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 should reflect what the insurer's experience is in that class and the level that they need to make money. Now, the underwriting from that then comes from things like the size of the business, whatever that past tale is. So remembering it's claims made. So it's what you did six years ago, five years ago, four years ago, really where that key exposure is. The risk management quality of the firm and, and, and the claims experience. The point you're saying is it, it, it is... I agree. And I think in, in, in this marketplace, I could well foresee um, insurers saying, well, your fee comes up 10%, ignoring the fact that it's probably a better risk because you've done less work, which makes no sense. And I think I haven't got a magic answer to it other than to say I, I have a fair amount of, of sympathy in that. And I think it's quite interesting because if you, if you go back to 2011 and the whole risk and reward, that's really... Mm, yeah what it was saying really and I, I'm, I'm not sure as a market we really reacted i've seen some proposal forms where it asks about i mean if we're talking valuations you know ask for the number of valuations per year so i guess that's taken yeah. in but and, honest- and i yeah and i guess it's understanding the role of a surveyor mm. you know and, and i'm thinking on the residential you know um survey and 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 valuation side is understanding the kind of work really the kind of work they they do i mean a lot of the the clients i work with you know i encourage them to do work that they love and get paid what they're worth because actually they'll enjoy it more when you enjoy it more you do a much better job and so if you're doing better work and being paid for it then ultimately you should have a a lower risk but then it's it seems as you get stuck in this cycle so so maybe you know Hugh Mark you could just feed that back to whatever chain that you've uh, or, or network that you've um, that you've got but it's an interesting point one thing i just like to uh, uh, wrap up on i'm coming across a lot of surveyors who are newly qualified particularly in the residential sector who are newly qualified who go straight into working for themselves sometimes they've got business experience a lot of residential surveyors tend to have a come into the profession uh, a bit more mature should we say in terms of business and life experience and then they get qualified as surveyors as ACTOC or sometimes MRICS and then they go straight into working for themselves does that then affect the 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 PI and the premium that they get because for me they they come across as quite high risk in terms of being a surveyor is a lot of it is about being an experienced surveyor it's the number of properties that you've seen, the hours on the clock, so to speak. But I wondered if, you know, Hugh, Mark and, and Alex, whether you had any views or any thoughts on that. I would only say that if you're if you're on your own, who is going to undertake that peer review? Who is going to 
who are you going to bounce ideas off when you've got a tricky valuation you're thinking i've really got to consider particularly maybe on more on the commercial side where you're looking at adjustments on yields if you're all on your own that makes that that much more difficult um but that doesn't necessarily mean as long as you've got robust risk management in place and you've properly worked through your terms and conditions and you you have that business acumen then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to operate perfectly well mm. i think for, for well, my take on it, it it's almost you're newly qualified and the first thing you're going to do is to get your experience in, in your own business. It seems an awful lot to take on, doesn't it, if we if, if we think about it? And I think that would be my concern from a risk perspective of it seems very early to start your own business where you're not only doing the work but running, running that business. I would personally say that increases the risk. Conversely, I guess if you're only established, you know, bearing in mind the point we made of your exposure is over the last six years, if you're a new startup, you've got no exposure. So technically, from an insurer perspective, it, it could work. I just my worry would would always be on that is okay well what's going to happen in two three years when that exposure starts coming in and and, and i and i think it's that sustainability isn't it it's that foundation on on sand so i think from an insurance perspective it's it's a mixed bag I'm going to try to give you a double-edged sword on that but personally i would go with the former argument of it, it doesn't quite add yeah to i i think it's i think it's perhaps a reflection of the entrepreneurial spirit that some surveyors have, and we don't always talk about surveyors being entrepreneurs, but when you work for yourself effectively, that's what they're uh, they're, they're looking to do. And perhaps um, pushing back against the culture of the corporate surveyor and that run of the mill doing your six jobs or points a day, you know, and we actually want to have a much better work-life balance and, and, and culture. But it, but it does worry me, you know, because it's not what happens now. You're absolutely right. It's what happens in a few years' time when you get that claim when you get that problem um, and how you deal with it, you know, from a support point of view, but also then financially, you know. Yeah. And I think you, 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 you take it from insurers, whether we agree, disagree, view our ISIS members and surveyors as a high risk part of their portfolio, particularly if you're doing valuation work. And then the second point is this whole issue on fire safety. So it's viewed as high risk. So you can be as entrepreneurial, you're being entrepreneurial in a, in a high risk area. So you've just got to balance that out. And then I guess the final point is we've seen it, you know, in the lawyers market with, with, with sole practitioners and the difficulty that that end of the market has in terms of securing work, which would be the same for a valuer because you unlikely to get on a panel but also securing insurance year after year after year mm. anything from you Hugh yeah just again I think as, as Alex said it's it's really you know making sure that you have uh, robust risk management processes in place you know you have clear terms of engagement and your contracts are tight would recommend uh, anyone new starting out making sure that they're reading the risk liability insurance guidance note and picking up on those those tips that are outlined in there and just uh, trying to make sure that they really have their processes and, and contracts as as watertight as possible and make use of things like uh, liability caps well we could do a whole session on liability caps because that's something that gets asked about a lot as to how how big should my liability cap be and is it fair and and reasonable but there's guidance on that isn't there in in the in the RICS documents yes there is yeah yeah and ultimately it just comes down to whether your client will accept it 
or not, <laughs> ultimately. But look, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a really interesting chat. Uh, Ruth and Paul, I hope you found that interesting. I can see you've been scribbling down things. <laughs> so, so I hope that's been uh, been helpful. But thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Marion. Thanks very much, Marion. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback. So please feel free to drop me a message. You can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com or you can find me on social media at Marion Surveyor.